add to Alvis's welcome. We're delighted that you're here with us. And uh, the verses that Alvis read from Ephesians 4 are verses that we're kind of bedding down in for a little while on Sunday evenings. Uh, just trying to look at some of those principles that the Apostle Paul outlines there and uh, working through this under the heading of how a good church functions. For most of us, we, uh, we go about our daily lives pretty much oblivious to those who are around us. You go to the supermarket, you go to a restaurant, to the theater, and even though in those situations you're alongside people, sometimes around a lot of people, doing the same thing as those people, it's possible to, at the very same time, be very separate from them. When you're finished in the supermarket, the restaurant, the theater, you will leave with the group that you came with and not give a thought to the other folk who were there. We won't give a thought to what their story is. We won't give a thought to what they are going home to. And that's fair enough. But that sort of thing is saddest of all when it describes people's experience of the church. We might sit next to someone. We might sit in amongst a lot of people. Sing the same songs. Listen to the same sermon. Say amen to the same prayers. But actually to have no meaningful contact with them. You see, if church just becomes another thing that we do, another thing that we consume, another place that we go to at a certain time on a certain day, and our thoughts of church never rise to some sort of understanding of what it means corporately, then we have missed part of the fundamental essence of what church is. And we're a long way from Christ's design for his church. We're almost exactly halfway through this short series that I've mentioned, drawing on those themes from Ephesians 4. These timeless principles that every church needs to have bedded deep into its fabric if it is to actually be the church. That chapter of the letter is where Paul turns, having, having shown us how glorious a thing the church is, he turns and he says, now be the church. And outlined there is Christ's pattern for how a good church functions. So we saw in week one that the pattern starts with God-given leadership. Christ has given to the church gifted individuals who carry and teach the word of God so that as they minister the word of God, they build up the members of the church so that the members can serve. And in the second week, which was the last time uh, we were in this series, we saw that a good church functions by recognizing that every member is uniquely gifted. Uh, that's found in verse 7 of Ephesians 4. The Lord has given grace to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we spent a bit of time in 1 Corinthians 12 to flesh that out, and we're going to do something similar tonight. We saw that every Christian is gifted and that gifts are given by Christ to be used. And we saw that often asking where we can serve in the church or how we can serve our brothers and sisters is a more useful thing than asking, well, what is my gift? But you see, we could have in, in, in church 
Uh, if we stopped there, we could have a, a group of Christians who we all agree are uniquely gifted. But if they did not also recognize the principle we're considering tonight, it would all be for nothing. Because a good church functions when every member is interdependent. So let me start by laying down a a precious principle. It's the sort of thing that when you grasp it, it changes your life. I don't know about you, but I, I spent my teenage years in a church where people loved the gospel, but they often had some interesting ways of talking about what it meant to be a Christian or to become a Christian. Some of the ones that stick in my mind are um, that there's, there's a God-shaped hole in everyone and you need Jesus to fill it. Or in a similar vein, what you need to do is you need to ask Jesus into your heart, that kind of language. Now, I know that the sentiment behind those things is good and that not necessarily everything about those statements is wrong, but it doesn't quite grasp the significance of what happens when someone becomes a Christian. We find that when we we just take a note of the way that the New Testament speaks about believers in Christ, that very rarely are they called Christians. Occasionally they're called believers. Sometimes they're called saints. But undeniably the most common term used in the New Testament to describe Christians is in Christ. In Christ. And it's such a valuable thing for us to keep reorienting ourselves back to that New Testament perspective because it tells us that any of the benefits that we have because of the gospel, whatever aspect of it you care to consider, whether we say we're justified, we're sanctified, we're adopted, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, and on and on we could go, we only possess those things in Christ. We don't receive them merely because of Christ. It's only by virtue of our being united to Jesus Christ that these things come to us. Jesus isn't the means of getting the benefits of the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. It's him that we need. And so the relationship between Jesus and the believer is crucial. And just even in that that short phrase, in Christ really gets to the heart of it. We're united to him. We are immersed in him. And that that relationship is captured in the image that the Lord Jesus uses in John chapter 15. You'd find this from verse 4. He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Christians are united to Jesus Christ. This is the same sort of thought that lies behind a picture of how when Paul presents marriage as a picture of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul tells us that the union between a man and a woman in marriage is a picture of the union that Christ has with his church and that that ought to be reflected in the Christ-like love that a husband has for his wife. Indeed, in Ephesians 4, which Albus read for us, we find this theme is evidence that the church is the body of Christ. 
with Christ as its head. And this is inevitable what follows on from there. If every believer is united to Christ, then on this basis, they're united to one another. Christ is the head of the church. There's only one head. Therefore, there is only one body. It may have many local expressions, but there is only one body. And this is one of Paul's preferred pictures of the church. You'd find it also in Romans 12, where Paul sums up the implications. Where he says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The members of a church belong to one another. That's the theory. But what's the practice? Well, as suggested, we're going to turn to a chapter that we looked at last time, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to turn with me there. We saw last time that in the first half of that chapter, Paul emphasized the diversity of the members of the body, that it was rooted in unity, they're one in Christ, there are varieties of gifts, varieties of service, and so on. And what we're going to do tonight is going to read the second part of this chapter. We're going to read from verse 12 down to verse 26. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Amen. And so as we've seen at nearly every turn, as we've gone through this short series, Paul seems eager to make sure that we get the balance right. The diversity that exists in the church is rooted in It's unity in Christ. And we see that again here. You see in verse 12, the body is one, even though it has many members. And those many members are from from different backgrounds. Verse 13, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. But they are all baptized into this one body by the Holy Spirit. 
It's really saying that whatever our backgrounds, we all came the same way. By virtue of our shared faith in Christ, we belong to one body. So let me make a couple of observations from this passage about how a good church functions. The first is this. Don't wish you were another part of the body. Don't wish that you were another part of the body. This is where Paul shows us that he is serious about this analogy of the body. In effect, he says, imagine if we applied some of the attitudes that Christians often have and we applied it to our own physical bodies. Let's imagine that different parts of your body started to strike up a rivalry with one another. The hand is, understandably, more honored than the foot. We greet people using our hands. We communicate with our hands. Most people earn their living by using their hands. And you can imagine one day the foot cooped up in there all day long, looks on at the hand and thinks, boy, would I like some fresh air. Isn't he an honored part of the body? Well, because I'm not getting used in the same way as the hand, then really I'm not a part of this body at all. And Paul tells us the same sort of thing applies to to eyes and ears. Take it to its logical conclusion. Let's say that the members of the human body gather together a conference to decide upon which member of the body was the pinnacle, the most desirable part of the body imaginable. And here he imagines, at least in part of his argument, that the conclusion is it is the eye. Paul asks us to imagine just how grotesque it would be if every part of your body was substituted for an eye. I mean, if that happened, what would be the point? What a hideous spectacle that would be. But that is the attitude of many Christians. They think that because they aren't gifted to serve in a particular way that their contribution to the body of Christ isn't worth very much. And oh, if only I had this other role, then I would really be able to make a contribution. But that is to miss what it means to be a body. That is to miss what it means for the members of the body to be interdependent. The body of Christ, just like the human body, depends upon diversity. The eye might be impressive, but without the feet, the legs, the nose, the ears, the mouth, the eyes, etc., then the eye isn't able to function as it should. In fact, Paul sums it up right, doesn't he, in verse 19? If all were a single member, where would the body be? And if that became our ambition, that we all had to have the same function, the same role, then actually we would cease to be a body. I think there are several ways that we can be guilty of falling into this false perception of what the church should be. The first is is that we start to think that the ministry of the church is to be entirely professionalized. That is, we pay staff members to do everything. Now, you won't be surprised to hear me say that If a church can afford to bring on staff, that is wonderful. It is to be encouraged. But staffing a church should never be there to allow the members 
to simply take a back seat. Rather, the appointment of staff members should be to encourage, to facilitate the whole body of the church serving together. Otherwise, well, we cease to meet this definition of being a body. And so there's a challenge to all of us here, isn't it? That whatever abilities you've been given, whatever contributions you can make to serving and supporting your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you bear this in mind, that the church is the body of Christ, and that whatever you can do to contribute to the whole body functioning, well, when we do that, we are serving where God has arranged us to be. And isn't that just exactly how he words it in verse 18? It is God. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And there's that uh, challenge for us. That What is it that drives us to, to wish we were another part of the body at times? Do we not like the idea that my simple work behind the scenes makes someone else's public work easier? Does that threaten us somehow? Or are we happy to say, look, What a privilege to belong to this body of Christ. What a privilege to be together with these other brothers and sisters. Maybe I can help. Maybe I can serve in some way. So don't wish you were another part of the body. Second of all, don't think you don't need the other parts. And that seems to be the emphasis that Paul has from verse 21 down to verse 26. Don't think you don't need the other parts. So Paul almost looks at this from the opposite side, where one part of the body starts to look down on another part. So here, before, we had, we had the part that felt lowly and was, was envious of another part, and here we have a part that is filled with a bit of self-importance and looks down on another part and says, verse 21, I have no need of you. But Paul says, if we think like this, we are being fooled by appearances, And again, he brings us back to how we treat our own bodies. Um, He writes very delicately, I think, here, the parts that are unseen and regarded as less presentable. And uh, I think the simplest way to sum up what he's referring to there is to say the private parts. We don't decide because they're not for show that they should just be removed and done away with. In actual fact, we pay more attention, we take more care in order to preserve their modesty. In that way, the seemingly weaker parts are actually being more honored than the more honorable parts that are on display that don't really require that much attention. All the members of the body feel a duty of care towards all the other members. To believe that some members of the body are dispensable, is to fail to grasp what it means to be part of a body, to be part of Christ's body. I know that for all of us, um, one time or another, we will have been asked the question, if you could change one thing about your body, what would it be? And uh, many people seem to answer that question talking about their feet. And who can blame them in the main But even though we might think that they are an unattractive part of the body, none of us would conclude that the right solution is to get rid of them or to think for a moment that we don't need them. Actually, they are hugely functional. 
But I think this perspective, again, is one that is fairly common in churches, where it is easy to think that we don't need the other members of the body of Christ. And I say that it's fairly common because I'm confessing how easy I find it to think like that. So let's ask, what are some of the ways that this appears in the life of the church? The first one that comes to my mind is is that we engage in isolated living. When we, as I mentioned at the start, when we meet in the same building on a Sunday but have very little meaningful contact outside of that, the result tends to be that we have polite relationships, but often in no meaningful way do we depend upon one another. In effect, we look on at our fellow Christians and say, well, I have no need of you. It helps to boost the singing on a Sunday morning, but outside of that, I have no need of you. Another way this can appear is that sometimes members of the church are given preferential treatment, and sometimes that can be because they have particular gifts, particular resources, while others who don't have those things are much more easily dispensed with. And again, this shows up in a variety of ways. Sometimes someone makes a suggestion. Sometimes someone makes a complaint. And the way it's dealt with can sometimes depend on the kind of member of the body this is. For example, a low-key member of the church is more easily corrected or more easily disappointed than someone who has a very public, prominent area of service. But I would say we know we've begun to grasp what it means to be part of the body of Christ when we value all of its members. And in fact, in particular, when we make a point of honoring those and serving those who are not like us. When we walk more patiently with those who have weaknesses, different weaknesses from us. More than that, when we recognize that the unseen work of, dare I say, ordinary church members is the often unseen but vital heartbeat of the life of a church. And when we appreciate how precious every member of this body is to Christ himself, how essential to the body every member is, then we realize that actually when we're tempted to say, I have no need of you to some other member of the body of Christ, we do ourselves harm. Only then, when we grasp those things, does the beauty of of what Paul writes in verses 25 and 26 of 1 Corinthians 12 become a reality. Where he speaks there about the members having the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Because this becomes a reality when we see that the welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ is actually in our interest. And more crucial than that, it's in Christ's best interest. Because you see, we're on the same side. There is one body. And we're in that same body. And here is the point on this 
this issue of interdependence and, and, not, and being careful not to think that we don't need the other members. We cannot function like this if we're trying to do it from a distance. Some of the things that can help are things like being part of a house group, taking time with fellow Christians to study and apply the word to each other's lives, to, to pray for each other and our various needs. These are, these are helpful steps. Having some individuals that we meet up regularly with, specifically to share one another's burdens. And maybe even specifically going out of our way to meet with someone who's, just, who's not just quite like you. This is what the body of Christ is to be like. And those verses that Al was read for us in Ephesians 4, uh, towards the end of that passage Paul writes, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's screaming out at us that we need every part of the body if the church is to function as Christ has designed it to be. And they can only function as Christ has designed it to be as they depend upon one another, as their lives are joined with one another. And that's a real challenge to us. A challenge to us in a number of ways. A challenge to us in being in the northeast of Scotland. A challenge to us being a city centre church where most of us commute in. But there has to be some way that we can make those meaningful connections with one another. As I close, I want to make one more point, and that is to note that um, where Paul takes this discussion, when we read 1 Corinthians 12, it's probably helpful to bear in mind that 1 Corinthians 12 isn't the entirety of Paul's argument here. This isn't the entirety of Paul's teaching on this subject to the church in Corinth. It runs into chapter 13 and then into chapter 14. And the church in Corinth was a remarkable paradox of a place. They were, um, you know, they were amongst the first to come to faith in Christ. They were a young church, and it was clear that the Lord was at work in their midst. Uh, Paul, in the opening chapter, says that you know they, they lack no spiritual gifts, but they were missing something. And what follows on from 1 Corinthians 12 and the discussions about gifts and about these principles of of how we should function as a body is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul outlines for them the still more excellent way. And this is key. Your service in the church, you may be gifted. You may be sacrificial in how you use it. You may be valued by others in the church, but it is possible to be all those things and for it to ultimately not be worth very much to the Lord. Look at these opening verses in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
You see, when he comes into chapter 13 here, he tells the Corinthian church, and he tells us every time we read it, what it is that gives value to your service for Christ. It's this quality of love. It's when what drives us to use the gifts that God has given us is something other than status or applause or to get people to notice, to get a following, to show off. How tragic when we fall into those traps. Here Paul says, come back to this. When we're driven by this genuine care for the body of Christ, it's what gives value to your role in the body of Christ. Is when you love, when you love others. And by definition, you cannot serve Christ demonstrating love by being a lone ranger Christian. It's just, it's just a physical impossibility. If we are to show the necessary love in our service that necessarily requires more than one person. And we can't do that from a distance either. So let me encourage every one of us as I challenge myself with these things to re-grasp the simplicity of belonging to the body of Christ. All the Christians in the church that you're part of, they belong to Christ. And because they belong to Christ, they belong to you. And you belong to them. They are precious to Jesus. Just look to the cross to see how precious they are to him. And he has placed them there. He's placed them in that particular place, in that particular church. He has given them the abilities that they have. And therefore, you need them. And they need you. And so we come back to ask those simple questions of ourselves. How can I help my brothers and sisters in my church to help them? How can I help them to follow Jesus better? What can I do? Who can I walk with to encourage them in their faith? Who can I pray with as they struggle through those difficulties? Who can I pray for? How can I serve in the life of the local church that I'm part of? These are the questions we ask because we recognize that a good church functions when its members are truly interdependent. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for, for the church. And we want to thank you for what a glorious thing it is to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And Father, for all of the, the thoughts that we've, we've had about the church, we pray, Father, you'd help us to never forget that Christ is the head of the church. Whatever our thoughts, whatever our um, convictions, everything comes under his supreme authority in the church. But we recognize, too, that with that authority comes a responsibility 
to submit to that authority. And we thank you that the church is Christ's design. We thank you for the the diversity of people that belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And also, in this local church, we thank you for the ways in which that is seen. We pray, Father, you would help us. Help us not to fall into these traps that we've thought of that are so easy to fall into, where we become envious of one another, where we become despising of one another, where we assert our independence and, and reject the need for interdependence in the body of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would, you would teach us again just what our salvation cost and help us to see that every one of our brothers and sisters were bought at that same price and are precious to you. Help us, Father, to, to have that, that care that comes from recognizing that we belong to one another. Help us to help some individual this week and in the weeks ahead to grow in their love for Christ. Help us to contribute to the maturing of the church as we together grow into the fullness of Jesus Christ. And we pray for your grace to do this. Help us in our motives, Father. Help us to be those that are driven by true, Christ-like, servant-hearted love. For we know that when we do this, then we do something that is really of value, something that is pleasing to you, and something that brings glory to your name. And so we pray for your help in these things now, in Jesus' name. Amen.